This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3RRRFM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with feminist and writer Anne Summers. Anne joined me in the studio to talk about her fascinating life, which is detailed in her new memoir, Unfettered and Alive. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio Anne Summers, feminist, author, columnist, public speaker, many other things, and she joins me in the studio to talk about her new memoir, Unfettered and Alive. Hi there, Anne, and thank you for joining me. Lovely to be here. It's so great to have you in to chat, Um, and this memoir of yours really is such a huge adventure, really, in terms of the things you've done, the places you've been. But I want to start out with some of the things that you've um, spoken about in the past around the spring point of this book, which is when you're 30 and you've just published your um, very well-known book, Damned Whores and God's Police. And I know that in previous interviews, you've talked about the kinds of approach that second wave feminism had in the 60s and 70s when you were looking at your predecessors, the other you know, suffragettes and, mm. and so on, and how you viewed them. And the, I guess that you made a, a point of difference. You were very particular in the type of feminism you were talking about and the terminology was also quite different such as women's liberation Mm. so at that time what was your um, view and how did you define yourself and how did others define themselves in the women's liberation movement Mm. well I mean as you said we didn't use the term feminism initially I mean I'm talking about the late 60s I I, um, was, was part of the very small group. I think there were six women um, who formed the first Adelaide Women's Liberation Group uh, at Adelaide University in 1969. And we thought feminism was a kind of old-fashioned word and a politically conservative word. And we were all fairly radical in our politics. We were very much against the Vietnam War. We were kind of involved in the student revolt that was happening uh, to some extent then. And now, we came across the ideas of what we now call feminism um, initially through Marxism. And, the, you know, the, I was first introduced to, to, the, to the concept that women were still lagging behind when it came to equality by a woman called Juliet Mitchell in an article which was initially published in New Left Review, which was a British publication and subsequently published as a book in which she outlined the areas in which women were still inferior um, or discriminated against in modern society. In that article, total, it was called Women, the Longest Revolution, and that just completely opened my eyes because I um, thought of myself as a modern, emancipated woman and I didn't... I mean, I, I actually did know, but it didn't... It, it hadn't... Had, because I'd applied for jobs and, you know, the rates of pay that I was going to get were much less than, than for men. So, I mean, I knew that there was inequality, but somehow I didn't have a political framework in which to understand it. And her article... Uh, provided that and then and I read that actually in 1967 so that was sort of got me started and the, mm. the women's liberation ideas came along a year or so later and they were mainly from the United States and the radical women in the United States started you know becoming very militant and very um, creative in their language and very exciting and I um, um, along with a lot of other women of my age we were in our early 20s then uh, responded and we decided we'd do the same thing create, mm. create our own groups and did that lead you in in that journey? Did that lead you to start to write a book? Did you have set out thinking I'm going to write no, a, no, a book? No, I mean I think I mean I I originally started writing Damned Whores and God's Police in 
either 71 or 72, I can't remember now, but, but it was after I'd moved to Sydney um, from Adelaide and I... I'd, I'd read everything that was coming out of Britain and the United States. I mean, there were some fantastic books then. There was Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics. There was, of course, Jermaine Greer's book. Um, there was another book called The Dialectic of Sex by a woman called Shulman Firestone, who's not so well known today, but, but was quite a big book then. There was Sisterhood is Powerful, which was an anthology of, of, of radical writings about women. There was lots of this fantastic stuff, and, and there was also a lot of history. And what I realised is that these these political arguments and these um, analyses of society were based on other countries, not our own. And it seemed to me that we needed uh, something. Particularly, I was particularly interested, influenced by Kate Millett's book, Sexual Politics, because she was, even though it's a work of literary criticism in, in a sense, but she was still analysing the literature of, of the United States and all of, the, all of the cultural references were to the United States. And I just started thinking, thinking, well, what we really need is a book that would look at Australia and look at Australian customs and Australian mores. And initially I had thought, and when I went to Penguin, I pitched it as a book that would be uh, a critique of mateship. And I saw it as quite narrow. Mm. Um, and they loved the idea and they said, sure. Uh, but as I started writing it and researching it, it kind of grew and grew because I realised that I really need to kind of, if if I could if I could find the wherewithal to do it, and I'm very glad that in the end that I did. But it was a very daunting prospect because I just I decided what was needed was to actually take on the whole of Australian history and re re-examine it, if you like, through feminist eyes, and that's what I tried to do. As well as that was sort of half of the book, and the other half was a. Um, an, an analysis informed by feminism of contemporary society, of Australian society in the early 1970s. Mm. And it was interesting to me that you talked about your aunt, one of your aunts, mm. who was not married mm. and did not have children, and that she was somewhat influencing you without your noticing it at the beginning at least in terms of the options that you had available to you as a woman at the time I mean it's hard for us now to look back and think that there were such restrictions on women but there were certainly ones enshrined in law that were that if if one got married um, you couldn't be in the public service you couldn't be in the front bar of a pub and so I just wonder when you were forming yourself and finding out what kind of woman you were, uh, especially at that beginning of your career when you're moving into journalism, what were the factors? What do you think influenced you the most? Apart from your aunt who definitely set you on a path, what were some of the other key people or moments at the beginning that seemed to well, put every, you on a path? It was everything. I mean, one, it's, it's, once you apply a feminist lens I guess is the word that's used these days I'm not, not sure that I like that word very much but you know a feminist analysis or a feminist perspective uh, on the world I mean everything changes because you just you, 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 you see how unfair things are you see where where women are excluded or women are treated uh, with hostility or women are discriminated against whether it's in pay or in opportunity or um, access to jobs or you know, access to um, to culture or whatever it is, and and once you once once you start seeing the world that way, you can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you really can't unsee it, and why would you want to? And also, you you, you keep seeing um, 
new every time you see it encounter something new you kind of analyze it through that perspective so it was a kind of an evolving process rather than you know one single set of mm. events or one single person but i mean i kept then we kept realizing and again we were kind of prompted a bit by some of the stuff that was coming out of the states and we realized you know we're in the in the um anti-war movement you know which is co- totally led by men yeah, and that we, even though there were you know, quite a lot of women there, we were expected to, you know, make the cups of tea and wash up after the meetings, and you know, get the rooms ready for the meetings, and do the radioing of the pamphlets and all that stuff. We so we were the housewives of the revolution, if you like. We thought, well, that's not right. Um, so the, you know, we just realised that even the radical alternative universe that we thought we were in mm. still um, exhibited a lot of the characteristics of the of the mainstream society when it came to male superiority and male dominance. Mm. So you've been in and worked in many male dominated fields, and especially at the time, journalism was male dominated at all levels, not just the editor levels that we still see today. Um, you worked as a political journalist in the press gallery in Canberra, which is also, as you say, very male dominated, though there were great women like Michelle Grattan. Mm-hmm. But in, in that time when you're working in those types of environments where you need to, I guess, mould yourself to a certain culture to fit in, how did you maintain your own sense of self and, and feminist approach? Like, as you say, the lens that you had, how did you navigate those particular fields? Um, well, it's a, it's a, <laughs> you're talking about, you know, maybe eight years of my life, so it, it, it wasn't um, a single experience. I mm. mean, often it was quite difficult figuring out how to kind of fit in, do your job. I mean, trying to understand the mores of the place, understand the codes of conduct, for example, in the press gallery. And although, I mean, there were a lot of, there were three women bureau chiefs, uh, and I don't think there even are that, that today. Mm. So apart from Michelle Grattan and me, there was also Gay Davidson at the Canberra Times. So it wasn't, and there were quite a lot of women in most of the bureaus. So it it wasn't as bad a situation as you might think, looking back. It was actually, you know, quite... I wouldn't say it was completely equal, and, mm. but you did have a lot of top jobs held by women and there were a lot of other women there. You know, one of the most interesting challenges in those press gallery years was to sort of work out your relationship with the politicians. And mm. the, although the press gallery, you know, was hardly a feminist paradise, but, you know, there were quite a lot of women there, more than, more than perhaps you'd think. But when it came to politics, there were very few women politicians, mm. and very, I mean, amazingly few uh, and we're talking about the late... I started the press gallery in 79 and was there until 84. And, you know, I can't tell you the exact number now, I forget, but, but there was one woman in Cabinet and I think there were only about two women in the House of Representatives and, you know, maybe mm. three or four in the Senate. It was a very, very tiny number. So basically politics was, was male-dominated and a lot of the politicians, or not all of them, but, you know, a number of them sort of saw the women journalists as fair game. So there was, a, you know, particularly the younger ones, young radio journalists, and a lot of them used to have a hard time. They'd go do an interview with the cabinet minister at night and, you know, he'd chase them around the desk and that, mm. that kind of thing. And that was, um, you know, we just sort of had to deal, you know, work out how to, to deal with that and basically put the word out, never go and interview this guy at night and, you know, and just keep, keep an eye out on this person. But I have a few stories in the book about some of the encounters I had with with various politicians who were, you know, either a bit sleazy or, you know, out-and-out sexist and things that they said, the way they treated you. 
but not everybody was like that. I mean, I, because I was with the Fin Review, I mean, and I, if the politicians wanted to talk to the Financial Review's audience yeah. uh, of business people and, and bureaucrats, well, they had to talk to me. So uh, that meant that was a bit of a constraint on, on some of them. Mm. And you talk about some of those encounters you had with Malcolm Fraser because you were often part of the press pack that would follow Malcolm around. Mm. It is interesting just how much he appears to have changed over his life. You know, at the end of his life, he seemed like he was even further to the left of the Labor Party. But at the time, it, it does really sound like he had a very kind of stern approach mm. and he somewhat softened his personality or at least that's how it appears possibly at, yeah possibly I'm, maybe. Not sure, I'm not sure that i buy that but, <laughs> um i can't I, I had nothing to do with him in, in the later years so I, I wouldn't want to comment on that but i mean i know plenty of people who you know thought he was wonderful and, and that he was completely different um but certainly in in the years that i knew him in in canberra he was, you know, a real a bastard towards you know, his staff, his 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 colleagues, his, uh, the journalists. Um, you know, I think it basically underneath he was probably very shy, mm. uh, but nevertheless uh, he was the prime minister and he should have been more civil uh, towards people that, than he was. You mention in the book that there were so many men in power that you met and came across who took power and performed their masculinity in one way and then, you know, altered themselves at the end and seemed to be a bit kinder. Do you wonder whether that is some kind of element of the patriarchy or the performative elements of masculinity that men might slide into quite easily? Well, I, what I was talking about there is you know, observing that um, a number, and I was talking about this in the context of my own father, who was never a very powerful man in the world, but but he was, you know, he was within his family, and he exercised that power rather rather um, you know, forcefully. But, you know, once he, he got older and he got sick, he got cancer, mm-hmm. and he went into a not- notable physical decline. And the frightening person who he had been when I was a child, you know, became this kind of quite almost pathetic old man. And I was commenting on that, that I'd I'd observed this happening or a comparable process happening in men who'd been in very powerful public positions, like like running big companies or, you know, running, for example, the Defence Department, though I don't don't have any particular head of Defence Department in mind, but but, but running big organisations, someone who'd been powerful and brutal in the way they conducted themselves when they were in those powerful positions. And, you know, I knew a lot of them who, you know, once they retired and uh, no longer did those jobs and they softened and they kind of smelt the roses and, you know, they became different types of people. And, you know, the question that raises for me is, and what does this mean? That in order to, to run something, you have to be a bastard, you have to be brutal? And does that mean if women go to run things, they have to be brutal as well? Mm. Or, I mean, is this, is, I mean, I'm just commenting really on, is, is this the model? Is this the only model we have for leadership and for, um, uh, for being in charge of, of things? And, and I'm obviously hoping that it's not. <laughs> yes. Well, that does remind me of a very recent chat between Julia Gillard and Jacinda Ardern um, where she was saying she hopes to have a different model of leadership that involves compassion rather than, you know, gusto and bravado that she sees a lot of other political leaders um, utilising to get what they want. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, it's it's very interesting, I think, to watch Jacinta Ardern, I mean, for for a couple of reasons. I mean, not only because of who she is and her her style is very, very refreshing and, you know, Mm. she's young and she's 
uh, unlike any politician, you know, we've seen, I think, if not ever, certainly in a while, yeah, and not in this country. But she's the third woman Prime Minister of New Zealand. So first of all, they, they have a tradition there. Or they, yes. they're, they're creating a tradition of women leaders that we have still not been able to do in this country. We've only had one and we treated her uh, shamefully. And, you know, we need to have some more, I think, as quickly as possible so that we can learn to, to do it better. Mm. Um, so Jacinta is operating within a different context because of, the, that, of that past. So that's, that's helpful. Yep. And uh, it is a smaller country and it's a more tolerant country, I think, in lots of ways than, than Australia. So I think that she can behave differently. Mm. Uh, whether or not the next woman Prime Minister of Australia can behave like that will remains to be seen. I mean, let's hope so, but I think it'd be great if we could do it as quickly as possible <laughs> and get on with <laughs> get on with making it normal. I agree. That's true. It is really about normalising female leadership. Mm. It reminds me of when you became the first Assistant Secretary of the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. and Of the Office of the Status of Women. Yes, yeah. running that particular division yes. and office. And, you know, your experience there I found fascinating. Having um, watched women's policy, I was really surprised to discover that the uh, women's budget program had been under brought forward in the Hawke government because I was only aware of it in the early Labor governments mm-hmm. of Kevin Rudd. And I was just really surprised that, and it seemed to highlight that you can have gains and make progress and feel like, you know, you've done something quite radical that is going to make huge uh, change in the sense that you're reviewing every policy and deeming whether it has an impact upon women or not instead of it being just what's women's policy in inverted commas, you know, it's childcare, it's paid parental leave and all that kind of thing, that applying a gender lens, so to speak, across all areas of policymaking and departments was quite a radical thing Mm. to do. Mm. And we did have it Mm. for almost a decade, I believe. We're the first country in the world to do it. Yeah, Yeah. and and influenced other countries to take it up. But now we're really very, very behind and we've reverted back to this kind of pigeonholing of of women's policy issues and not looking at all issues as women's issues and all issues Mm. as an issue for gender equality. And you do write in the book about economic policy being about women. Mm. What are your thoughts about that that kind of reversion and the fact that you need to be so vigilant to be able to achieve and sustain that kind of progress? Well, I think it's it's more than vigilance that's required. I mean, Mm. one of the things that I have learnt, um, you know, having been in in this game quite a long time now, is that, and as I, I, I've got a chapter in the book called The Getting of Anger, in which I describe, um, you know, what John Howard did when he he got into power in 1996. And I've also written a whole book about this called The End of Equality that was published in 2003. So I'm revisiting uh, some of that material in this book, but in a slightly different, putting it into a different context. But I used to think that once you'd changed something, it was changed for good. I mean, I I had had no personal experience um, in my lifetime of reforms that were meant to be of benefit and which clearly were a benefit to the society being being retracted and being um, being abolished. So I knew that, you know, one of the things when I was first starting out and first writing this stuff and writing Damned Horse, I, I knew that during the Second World War that women had been in the workforce, they were paid equal pay, you know, they, were, they did all sorts of jobs that they'd been allowed to do before and as soon as the war was over they were kicked out of those jobs and they went back to paying the money equally and everything changed and I thought, well, okay, that was the war. You know, mm. that was the war, that's why that happened, that was terrible, but that was the war, you could explain it. 
and now suddenly it's happening. It's not the war. It's it's ideology. You know, it's it's a new government comes in and uh, has a very different view of what women should be, and um, and imposes that view on women and on society. Um, and that, I was really completely shocked by that, and, mm. and also got got very angry about it uh, because it was just it was um, turning back the clock. And it wasn't just you know, because we hadn't been vigilant. I mean, it, we were completely you know, gobsmacked when all this mm. stuff happened and couldn't believe that you would be so, in a sense, irrational as to uh, want to get rid of reforms that were not only social justice reforms that were good in their own you know, in their own right, mm-hmm. but they were a benefit to the society, but which also had, you know, embodied a statement about what you think about women. And here you have a government saying, well, you know, we just think basically women should go back and have babies. And that was what the Howard government was all about, you know. And that, so ever since then I've kind of realised that the, the fr- fragility of the reforms that we have and there's mm. no... I mean, childcare is another example. I mean, childcare policy has just changed so dramatically and it's now such an... I mean, it's never been great, but we were trying to work our way towards a, a coherent system mm. um, and that's all gone by the by. I mean, they're yeah. spending a fortune on it, but it's, it's not working. It's not working. It's a total mess, yeah. Yeah, and really in your life's trajectory, you've brought up in this book quite a few times the tension that you had between, you know, this desire to be an activist and change things and mm. really get straight to it and not beat around the bush, so to speak, and then this other kind of role you had as being an observer and mm. looking in from the outside. I mean, how do you reconcile that tension? Do you feel like you've ended up becoming one more than the other or you've managed to to find a peace with it? Well, it's, it's certainly been a constant tension in my mm. life, I'd say, since um, the 70s. I mean, I, I started out uh, thinking I would be a writer and a journalist or hoping I would be. But but I, I've also been an activist from my, you know ever certainly since university days, and I've always been um, unable to ignore injustice, and un- unable to just sort of uh, sit by and and watch something that I believe is wrong. And so I I guess I've alternated throughout my life in, and that's, that's accounted in some ways for some of the drastic changes in my career. Like when I left journalism in the press gallery and went to run the office of status of women. I did it not because it occurred to me to do. It, I was asked to do it, and it was suggested to me I, I, I do it. And I was sort of like, "Wow, really? Could I do that?" Mm. But then I thought, "Well, why not? I mean, this would be an incredible opportunity for me to use my knowledge of, of uh, women's issues, my my my, no, my knowledge about what needs to be done, and see how much you can actually do if you're inside the bureaucracy in the most powerful department of the government with a, a supportive government." Mm. I mean, this is like, you know, a, a perfect, the opposite of a perfect storm, you know, the perfect. Yes. Um, so it was just a perfect situation. And I kind of found found it irresistible. So I did it. So I had to set aside my, um, uh, so I, I mean, you wouldn't say I was an activist in the bureaucracy because obviously, you, you know, you had to conform to bureaucratic norms and all the rest of it. But I was no longer an, uh, an observer in writing about it. So it was somewhere in between. And then there's been other periods in my life when I've just been you know, almost a pure activist. So I kind of oscillate between the two. They're, all those elements are part of me and some of them come to the fore at different times according to circumstances or opportunities. Um, and there's always a conflict. I'm, I mean, when I'm there as a reporter, I wish I was there as a you know as a participant. And yeah. I talk about that conference I went to in Prague, 
for Greenpeace in mm. 2000 and, and I've, how frustrating I found that. And I um, concluded, well, maybe I would have been better off at that conference as a reporter rather than as a participant. It might have been easier if I'd had the, the cover of the notebook and, you know, had an excuse to go and talk to people and interview them, mm. uh, where, whereas just standing around as a, as a participant, I felt that I was not very effective. Mm. And it does bring me to this other point which I'm really interested in your observations on is that you went to America you've lived in America you are currently living in America um, in Brooklyn and so you've had this experience of two very very different cultures and economies and um, and worked in journalism in both countries and I just really was interested when you you wrote that um, you thought the US when you returned to Australia in the early 90s was far less progressive than a Australia at that point in time. This is before John Howard took office and this is the Keating mm, mm. era of which you um, became a, an advisor to him for a mm. short period of time. What were the things that Australia seemed to be doing better in or what were the differences that you observed between the two countries? Mm. Well, I mean, one of, the, one of the differences which still um, obtains today is the political representation of women. I mean, Australia is far, far ahead of the United States um, so you've got at the moment with the midterm elections, you have a record number of women running. I think you've got something like you know, 262 women running for office, and that's you know very significantly more than the previous record, which is in 2016. Mm. You look at the—I don't have the numbers with, in front of me right now, unfortunately—but I, I did have them ready for Q and A the other night, and because <laughs> I was—they were meant to ask me about it, then they didn't. Yeah. So I did have them at the ready, but. I said something like, you know, Australian Parliament, I think it's like 37% or something of women and uh, the Congress is something like 23%. Mm. So there's a marked difference and it was even worse, um, you know, back then, we're talking 20 years ago. The other area where back then, you know, we, we were, I hoped was we were on our way to making a decent childcare system and we certainly you know, had, a, I think, a, a good design for it and, and good principles being applied to it. The Americans have always been terrible on childcare because they don't agree that government should do it. I mean, Americans have a very different attitude to government providing services than, than we do. And so a lot of things that we would expect government to do, they don't. They're, either, they're done privately or, or not at all. Mm-hmm. So those are the sorts of things that, that I was thinking about. And also the women's movement in the States then and, and even now, not, I'm not really involved in the women's movement at the moment, uh, in the US, but I, you know, I observe things, but I don't. I'm not going to meetings or anything. But but when I was living there in the 80s, and when I was editing Ms. Magazine, I mean, I used to be struck by the extraordinary preoccupation um, of so many of the women's movement with pornography, and that they were interested in issues like that, and they weren't interested in equal pay or childcare or any of the economic issues that I thought were kind of you know, more more important, more relevant, and more um, determining of, of of a woman's um, ability to um, you know forge her own way in the world. Um, so it's just a very different approach. I mean, things like abortion obviously is a huge issue in the states. It's become more so here, but I mean, it's just massive there, and and at the moment for very good reason, for very frightening reasons. But it's always I think Americans have a much greater preoccupation with sex sexuality and related issues than we do. 
That is a really interesting point. It's certainly I interviewed a male academic in feminism, radical feminism, yeah. in fact, from Texas, and he had that approach of looking at prostitution and pornography um, as key feminist yeah. Yeah. issues of our time. Yeah, it's see, a good I don't point. think. I mean, I think they're they're relevant. Mm. They're, I'm not I'm not trying to discount them, but I, I, I do not think they are the key issues. I think the yeah. economic issues. Well, as I put in the Women's Manifesto that I developed a couple of years ago, which people can look at on my website, and it's free, um, I developed the four principles of women's equality, and they're all to do with the fundamental things that women need to be able to do in order to control their own lives. And everything, I would argue, anyway, everything else springs from that. If you've got control of your fertility, if you've got the ability to be financially self-sufficient, if you're free from violence Mm. and you've got access to political representation... Most you can pay, deal with most other things. Yes, yeah, and it reminds me that you do talk about the gender pay gap and the fact that um, we seem to be doing quite well um, at one point. What are some of the areas of unfinished business? And I know there are a lot of them, but <laughs> I'm just thinking that you know you write towards the end of the book. We need to have an idea of what success looks like, mm. and so within that context, what are some of the things that we've kind of just not made enough? Um, progress on and that would lead to the picture of success mm. that we should be aiming for i think what, what this this is a, this is an idea that i kind of been been grappling with for a few years now and it came from originally from a speech that hillary clinton made in san francisco um a few years ago when she was still secretary of state and she convened a big summit in san francisco on on women in the economy and she um it was a fantastic summit and she gave a really interesting speech mm which unfortunately is no longer on the State Department website, so you can't find it anymore. But she talked about um, the idea... She differentiated between progress and success, and I found that a really useful concept for trying to sort of understand where we are because, you know, we have made a lot of progress, uh, but we're not there yet. So, And we, we, we've, I think we've conflated progress and success. And progress, you know, is making changes and doing things, but what is success and what does it look like? And I don't think we've ever really asked ourselves that, except, in, you know, we say we want equality. Well, of mm. course we do, but what does that mean? What, what, what will that look like? And so I found that quite a useful kind of analytical tool uh, to apply to things and I think, and also to try and force us to to think, okay, well, what what do we want? What will success look like? And, you know, within that framework, I mean, there is still so much unfinished business. And I think, you know, all of the economic things that I just mentioned, I mean, they're all still, you know, uh, incomplete. Um, and and of, of all of them, I think probably violence is, is one of the worst because that's, that seems to be almost out of control yes. in our society at the moment. We have, you know, extraordinarily high murder rate of women. Um, you know, some, there's been some terrible weeks when it's been one woman a day killed. Um, but we know that every day women are being, you know, beaten or harassed or controlled or coerced or, you know, sub- subject to varying degrees of violence, mostly in their own homes. Um we think it's increasing. I think it's increasing. I mean, we don't know for sure. Is it increasing or are we just talking about it more? I mean, probably mm. a bit of both. Uh, but I think it is increasing because I think there's increasing pushback by some men against women's um, independence. The, the toll on, on, on the, you know, of this violence is really horrendous. And I don't think we're, you know, we, we 
are putting a lot of money into research and we're putting, you know, some, Victoria is pretty good at putting money into services, better than, than some of the other states. But even so, we're not really grappling with what this is all about and how do we stop it. So, you know, to me, that's one of my very big, you know, issues that I think we have to really get serious about. Mm. Well, it's difficult to confront because it's really one sex, the majority of that being men perpetrating that violence. And so it does make it uncomfortable to confront. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's certainly not an easy one. I mean, if it Mm. was, we might have had a bit more luck but it's 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 not only is it not easy but it as you say it goes to the sort of um heart of of relations between the sexes it goes to the very heart of of um you know masculinity if you like or some some forms of masculinity and some forms of femininity and i mean a lot of women are you know haven't developed the um the tools to resist this or to to not to know that you know this this kind of domination is wrong on how to mm. detect the signs and to get away in time or to you know not get, enter into a relationship with a man who's exhibiting those sorts of tendencies and you know I'm, one thing that that kind of disappoints me is I, you know after all these years you'd hope that women and girls would be a bit better equipped to um, navigate their way through the world and, and so many of them aren't yes. and I find that very sad. Yes, it really is still a process of trial and error in one's teenage years and 20s. Mm, mm, um, mm, you're mm. just trying to find your way. Mm. Well, I mean, I, I, I think that too. I mean, I, one of the things that strikes me, and I don't, don't mean to sound sort of patronising or unkind, but I, I just find that a lot of young women that I, I encounter and meet and read about and talk to um, are extraordinarily passive and, 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 and scared and, and they don't have the kind of bravery and the, the bravado that we had and when we were the same age, my age, my generation was. And I don't really know why that is. And I just, you know, it seems to me sad that all we, the things that we did to kind of shed our conditioning, and we've been brought up to be nice little polite girls, so, you know, we certainly weren't brought up to be, you know, Amazons or... <laughs> Whatever, um, but we we underwent a co- conscious process of, if you like, deconditioning. It was called consciousness raising, and mm. we, you know, it was a kind of quite political act where we tried to kind of unlearn all the things that we've been taught that you know because we equated you know femininity with with um, inferiority and and, uh, and not having the ability and the skills to you know just sort of stand up for yourself. We didn't want to be protected, and we didn't want to be you know, on a pedestal, we wanted to be free and independent people. And so you learnt to stand up for yourself and to, to be a bit stroppy. Mm. And there's this great song by this Melbourne, I mean, she's not, no longer with us, she's dead, Glenn, Glenn Tomasetti, a wonderful uh, folklorist in Melbourne, and she wrote this song, which is sort of a bit of an anthem for the women's movement for a while, called Don't Be Too Polite, Girls. <laughs> And it's a fabulous song. It'll be worth you trying to dig it up. But um, it seems to me today that, that that those lessons have kind of been lost. They haven't been passed down mm. adequately. Or to, I mean, I, I know plenty of young girls who aren't like that. But yes. but it does seem to be a bit of a you know a, a widespread trend. And so I keep saying to girls, you know, be bold, you know, stand up for yourselves, and you know, fight back. It doesn't matter. I, that people won't like you. It doesn't matter. You don't want those sort of people to like you anyway if they're not going to respect you. Politeness isn't going to get you to equality. No, no. 
And Summers, it's been amazing to speak with you and I really appreciate you taking the time. Oh, it's been it's been fun. I didn't realise our time was up. Yeah, <laughs> I would definitely keep going if I had more of your time. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, that no, was a very fantastic interview. Thank you very oh, much. Oh, good. Very, yeah. very thoughtful. Thank you so much. Yeah. And that was my interview with Anne Summers that I pre-recorded uh, a week or so ago and uh, she's on her book tour at the moment to promote her new memoir Unfettered and Alive which does it covers quite a, a large period of time she's actually written two memoirs um, this one starts uh, at the publication of Damned Whores and God's Police um, so yeah a huge um amount of things Anne Summers has achieved and if you want to listen back to uh, the rest of that interview it will be on uh, SoundCloud, on On Demand at rrr.org.au and also on iTunes if you search for Uncommon Sense Triple R This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au